This is, well, if you were here a few years ago, uh, I did a series on heaven and, and hell. I think we need to treat both. Uh, but uh, I was never very happy with it. And I'll tell you part of the reason why. If you're taking a look at what the Bible has to say about our life and eternity, it is almost nothing. It's so very little. And yet we want to know, don't we? We want to know, what will it be like? What will it be like when, when God has finished his work on the earth and the new heavens and the earth are here? What will it be like to, to live in his presence? What, what kind of joy will we have? We have all of these questions. And as a matter of fact, many of you have asked me those sorts of questions. We're getting older, Pastor Ian. We want to know, like, what is, what's next? What are we going to? And I've been very frustrated. I remember calling an old seminary pastor of mine when I was researching for the sermon series. I said, I need a great book. And he said, there's not a great book on this because there just isn't very much in Scripture. But what we're looking at this morning is clearly the most concentrated and most uh, detailed description of what it will be like to enter into eternity. And I want to explore it with you. We only have this week and next week left in the book of Revelation. And we're going to spend the next two weeks basically talking about what does Scripture say about what it will mean to be with God for all eternity. So let's jump in. Uh, we're also, as in previous weeks, not going to be able to get to every detail uh, because there are just too many of them. But first of all, uh, we need to remember that John sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is verse 1 of chapter 21, and it really belongs with everything that has gone beforehand. It's saying, remember all that's happened? God has finished his work. He has, he has judged evil, he has vindicated the righteous, and the old way and the old things in the world have passed away and the new has come. But here's the interesting thing. It says in verse 2 that John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. See, the picture in the end is not, well, finally we'll go up to the spiritual realm where everything is good and beautiful and true and leave this old gross world behind. Instead, the picture is that heaven descends to earth. And this is actually the picture that we see all throughout Scripture. Remember, in the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then what does he do? He comes down to walk with Adam and Eve. We skip ahead to the Tower of Babel about 10 chapters later in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And, and people are saying, we, everything's gone wrong down here. We need to make it right. We'll build this tower that reaches to heaven to restore relationship between us and God. And it says God is looking down. And he says, what are they building down there? I can't even make it out. It's so teeny tiny. He says, let us go down. And so they go down. We'll skip ahead a few weeks now to Christmas that's coming up. What does God do in Christmas? He comes down. Scripture is full. In, in many ways, it's the story not of how do we get up, but it's the story of how will God come down. And here, heaven comes down to meet the earth. Because the point isn't that God is finally going to destroy everything as if he couldn't, you know, I, I was reading N.T. Wright this week on this passage of scripture, and he said it's not as if God messed up so badly on the first creation that he had to start over. He never said the creation is not good after all. Instead, he redeems and remakes and renews. 
And so heaven comes down to the renewed earth. And we can really begin living the way God always intended for us to live. And then we, again, we see this strange picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the new Jerusalem, as I'm going to try and demonstrate to you, is actually a symbol, a representation of God's covenant people themselves throughout all time, made whole, made beautiful, and prepared for eternal life with God himself. Now, there is, I think, a where to our future life with God in eternity. But the point John's making about the New Jerusalem, the, the meaning of the picture is not, it's a literal city. Because as we're going to find out, the city is apparently a cube, 5,000 miles you know, long, 5,000 miles wide, 5,000 miles tall. I can't even imagine a city 5,000 miles tall, and I don't think we're actually meant to. Instead, the New Jerusalem, it, we're told that it comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And do you know who the New Testament constantly calls the bride of Christ? You and me, the church. The New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is a picture of God's saints through all time and in every place, redeemed, made beautiful, made whole, as we were always intended to be. Somewhere in the New Testament, it says that our life is hidden with Christ on high, kept safe for us until the time when it's ready to be revealed. This is that time. Our life at the end of all things, at the end of all things that we know, coming down to make us whole. Give you a few examples again of, of why I think that this is true. Uh, first of all, the 12 gates and foundations. Did you catch that? Isn't it interesting that something has 12 foundations? What could that mean? But the 12 gates have the names of the tribes of Israel on them. And the 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles on them. And if you remember, in the book of Revelation, there are always 24 elders surrounding God's throne, constantly bowing down and worshiping him. And what does 12 plus 12 make? 24. So these 12 different things are meant to represent God's people throughout all of history, all of eternity. The foundation and the entry into the life that we have is through God's church, is through God's people. Jesus said to Peter, Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ. And, and, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter. Because, actually, he says, Simon, because it's not any man that's revealed this to you, but it's, it's God himself who has shown this to you. And now I'm changing your name. Your name is Simon, but I'm going to call it Peter because you are the rock on which I will build my church. And what is a foundation other than a rock upon which you build? God's people are the foundation and the entryway into the life that God has for anyone who follows Jesus Christ. And that's why God gives us a mission in Matthew chapter 28, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples just before he ascends into heaven, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teaching them everything that I have. We are the foundation of the new life through Jesus Christ, and we are the entry into the new life through Jesus Christ. 
That's what God has made us. And finally, one day, even though in the rest of the book of Revelation, everyone's saying, that's not who you are. That's not what you are. You know, we think you're our enemies. We're going to put you to death. We want you to stop talking about this Jesus. And we experience that in some ways today, the truth will be revealed. No, we really are the gates into the heavenly city. We really are the foundation upon which God is giving life to the rest of the world. And it will be revealed as such. There's also the fact, and now we're getting into the details a bit, that these 12 gates are always open. Now, we don't have gates around Lemon Cove. There's no wall to keep you know, the riffraff out. Maybe sometimes you wish that there were, but then how would we go and make disciples of all the nations? But in the ancient world, the city walls served not just to mark the boundary of the city, but actually to protect the city against invading armies, especially. And so what would you do with the gates at night? Well, you would shut them so that no one could sneak in and cause danger for the people who lived there. But see, the walls of the city, what God has accomplished in the world means there's no danger left. It means that those gates can always be opened. And it means that uh, our, our access to God, who is said to dwell in the middle of the city, in some sense at least, uh, to fellowship and to friendship with God, it's never restricted and it's never limited. Even around Lemon Cove, you know, every once in a while I, I go around to visit some folks and I come up to a door and I hope there's no dog in front of it because sometimes there is and they're not nice. But I come up to the door and I knock on the door, right? Are you home? Are you available? Are you willing to see me? And I hope that I'll never see someone open the curtain, close it, and then not open the door. <laughs> but God's city is not like that. In God's city, the door is never closed. He has an open door policy. He is always available to his people. No one is ever stuck outside the city walls. Can you imagine in the ancient world, uh, your, your traveling took longer than you thought, and you get to the gate of the city, and it's closed. What would that feel like? Not only would it potentially be dangerous, but it would, it would cut you off from the good things in the city that you were coming to find. And it's not like that. We will never be lonely again. We will never feel abandoned again. Not in our hearts and brains due to any physical defect. You won't need to take your, your antidepressants anymore if, if you do that today. There won't be any emotional defect. There won't be any state of circumstances in which we will need to feel alone, abandoned, or unwanted and unloved. And then we see this strange thing of, of uh, the angel with the golden rod going around measuring the whole city, right? Maybe that... That seems like a strange thing because uh, if God presumably has built the city, he knows how big it is. He understands its size. He could reveal it. So the act of measuring is actually itself a symbol as well. And it, it goes back uh, to a passage in the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 40 to 48, where Ezekiel is told to measure the new temple that God will give to his people. And he measures the inner court. And he says, these are the dimensions here and there and everywhere. And by doing so, God is saying, this 
inner court of the temple. Your spiritual life and relationship can never be harmed, can never be destroyed. That's the relationship I'm building with you, Israel. But now it's not just the inner court in in the book of Revelation that's being measured. It's actually the whole city itself. And God is saying through the measuring, all of this belongs to me. It's all mine. And I won't let anyone or anything in that could possibly hurt my people who live there. It's a way of saying you are absolutely safe. And then if you caught this, There's something else we need to know. In verse 1, going back to verse 1 here, it says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. First heaven or first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And does anyone hear that and you're kind of bummed out? I mean, I love going to the ocean. What are you doing to me, God? Are you serious? But remember what the sea represents in the book of Revelation. He's not actually speaking about the ocean ocean. But instead, he's, he's speaking about the place where chaos and evil live. Uh, remember Jesus, he has the story of, of walking on water and stilling the storm. Remember that? Uh, his disciples, they're, they're on the Sea of Galilee, they're sailing across, and Jesus says, I'll meet you on the other side. Well, in one story, he's in the boat, and in another, he says, I'll meet you on the other side. But uh, in this case, when he's in the boat, a big storm kicks up, and Jesus is so tired, he's sleeping through the whole thing, and the disciples are like, we're going to die. This storm is so bad. And if you've, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but I understand that these sorts of storms are actually not uncommon, where everything is fine and clear and dandy one moment, and the next, you think you're going to die. And can you imagine, maybe you've experienced this, you've been caught on the sea in the middle of a storm and the waves are crashing this way and that and lightning is flashing all around you. And this is the picture that John wants us to to think of when he talks about the sea, this place of danger and uncertainty and chaos. As a matter of fact, one of the two beasts uh, had come out of the sea and God's saying that will never happen again. My new world is not a place of of danger and chaos, but it's a place of peace. So, there very well may still be an ocean in the renewed heavens and earth. In case you want to go sailing, it may indeed be there. The dimensions of the city, as I mentioned, are a cube, over 5,000 miles in every dimension. And if you think a city 5,000 miles high is strange, as I mentioned, you'd be very right. As a matter of fact, did you catch that the walls of the city are 144 cubits thick? A cubit's about a foot and a half, so they're like 200 feet thick. And yet they extend 5,000 feet into the sky. That's not even possible, folks. Right? That would fall over. Just a little breath of wind, it's not a wide enough foundation to hold up that structure. See, the point isn't that the city is actually this size. The point is instead, if you calculate the total area of the city, you'll find that it's approximately the same size as the then-known entire Hellenistic world, showing us that the proportions of this symbolic city are not meant to be taken literally, but instead to symbolize the fact that this really is a new world meant to accommodate all the saints from every nation. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw a great crowd that no one could number worshiping God, and the city is big enough. God's new world, the new restored church, is big enough for everyone who would come. 
The new Jerusalem, again, does not so much represent a literal place, so much as the kind of life the saints will experience. We will be made whole. We will dwell safely and securely. We will finally reflect God's glory in every way we were ever meant to because the city shines with God's glory. You and I will finally be all that we have longed to be. Uh, there is a really cheesy line from some movie, right? It's, you know, it's one, one person speaks to another person of the opposite sex. You know, wherever you are is home. You ever heard that? Something along those lines. The fact of the matter is, we can live just about anywhere, right? The important thing about who we are isn't the city that we call home or the city that we're from. That's not a key part of our identity. The important part is, is who we are, is uh, whether or not we are able to live up to all that God has for us with his help. And I think that sometimes we try to think of eternity as this place that will be. And God's trying to reorient our vision to say, it's not so much the place you will be as the person I will make you to be. You will finally be all and everything that you have secretly and outwardly longed to be according to my design for you. Again, not whatever I want to invent myself to be. Uh, we were watching, Ava had a dance recital the other day, and Ava was showing off uh, another time all of her, uh, she's in tumbling, so she's showing off her back bends and all of this stuff. And I was looking at her, and I was thinking, if I tried to do that back then, I would, I would die. Like, it wouldn't be like I would be injured, my back would break, and that would be the end. See, I can't do anything, right? God didn't make me to be able to do anything, or to, even to be anything. He made me to be someone specific. And when I am finally free to be able to do that, because God has dug all the sin out of me and the world uh, around me, and that's finally true. That's, that's when I'll be able to say this is heaven. So, first of all, uh, the arrival of the new Jerusalem is the final fulfillment of human hope to be all that God has designed us to be. And then, in that place, whatever it's like, and in that time, whenever it is, God's absolute presence will make sense of all of our lives. The lives past, but even the lives that will be at that time present. So if you take a look with me at verse 3 to begin with, because actually uh, this, these first eight verses presage the rest of the book of Revelation for us. So we just were doing verse 2. Now we're on to verse 3. And it said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. The important thing about this time and this place is that God will be at the center of it, to be our God so that we can be his people. He isn't a king here, locked away in a palace, as we normally think of, isolated from all of, his pro from all of our problems. Isn't that the strange thing? Whoever the, the leader of your country or your nation or, or whatever it is, is they, they have a place that they go that's not with you to live. The king has a palace. The president has a White House. Isolated 
from the life and the concerns of the people that he or she rules and governs. But that's not God's case. He will live in our neighborhood, not isolated from from our lives, but fully a part of them. He won't say, like Marie Antoinette famously said, let them eat cake when there was no bread to eat. But instead, he will provide the bread and maybe even the cake too. I don't know. There will be no more, uh, excuse me, that's the wrong paragraph here. He is immediately present with us to wipe away our tears and to inspire our laughter. One of my favorite stories of this. Actually, I'll tell you two as quickly as I can. But uh, first, uh, the capital city of Nevada, Carson City, uh, the governor has his mansion just uh, in a neighborhood. He's right there, or she is right there, depending on who's the governor. And every, there's a, a holiday called Nevada Day where they celebrate, you know, Nevada became a state. And on that day, they open up the governor's mansion. And on Halloween, as a matter of fact, they open up the governor's mansion for tours, and the governor sits on the porch, and he gives out candy to all of the kids. Isn't that amazing? I didn't know things like that still existed in our world, but that's what God's world will be like. Something like, I mean, I'm not saying he's actually sitting on the porch handing out candy. You know, God would do that. But something like it, right? He is present and involved with our daily lives in this amazing way. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Aslan, the great lion who is uh, representative of Jesus Christ for that world, uh, he, is, he is killed on the stone table, and then he comes back to life. And when he comes back to life, Lucy and Susan, two of the, the children who had, had seen this all happen, meet him and are with him. And there's this amazing picture of, of Aslan, of Jesus, with the children as, as the great lion romping and playing with them in the field and grabbing them in his big paws and throwing them up into the air and catching them. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. We got a couple of babies here this morning. They're doing great. They're awesome. So good job, everybody. Uh, but I don't know if, if, you, if you've had your own children, and especially if you're a dad, what do you love to do with your kids, right? You grab them. You throw them up in the air, usually when mom can't see. And then you, know, you catch them on the way back down. And, and, and what do the kids do while you're doing that, right? They laugh. They're, oh, this is so great. And it's funny, as they get older and you try and do that again, they're like, oh, then they get scared. But there's a moment in life where, where you have this ab- relationship of absolute trust. The children don't have any conception that they could fall. And the fathers wouldn't do it unless they were sure. At least I hope they wouldn't do it unless they were sure they could catch their children. <laughs> and that's the relationship that Revelation is describing for us. He will be our God. He will live in our midst. See, the, and then there's a key description here. It says that God will be the light for the city, and there won't any longer be a sun or moon or stars or anything like that. God's presence gives light at all times. There's no more night. There will be no more confusion, no more struggle to discover the good. But God is the great good will be immediately present to all and everyone at every time. And we will all fully long for God's presence in a way that even the most mature and the most spiritual person on earth could not even begin to imagine. And he will be right there to satisfy that longing every moment. 
Perhaps you've had moments in your life of deep intimacy, moments that you not only wanted to never end, but where your longing and joy for the relationship that was in front of you was so strong that it didn't seem enough to be near a person you loved but you were struggling to come up with what, how in this moment do, do, I, do I grab onto this person in such a way that communicates how deeply I love them and how close I feel to them right now. And maybe you tried a hug, right? But it wasn't enough, so you hugged harder. You found I could never hug hard enough and the person's tapping. You say, stop it. And you tried to kiss, but it wasn't enough, so you kissed harder. And you tried to express it in words, but eventually you gave up in the very best sort of frustration because words could never do. Well, here, God makes it possible. Here in the New Jerusalem, in the immediate light of his presence, you will forever be able to live in it, to desire more of it, and to always have more and never run out. And we will bring our glory and our honor into it. We'll bring all that we have to God, always bowing before him, and yet always lifted up, always embraced. And there will be nothing to spoil the endless moment. And then and there, we will share God's abundant, his eternal life. From verses 4 and 5, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, right, well, that's for next week, what he said next. We'll share God's abundant eternal life and we will never have to pack up and go home. Life flows through the city like water. And the Eden relationship is restored, not only vertically, so to speak, between us and God, but also between you and I and everyone we've loved. For how important this picture is, it's strange that the Bible has so little of it. Even in the book that most directly addresses the question of life after death and life after life after death, we only get two chapters out of 22. And that got me to thinking, Why? Why do we get so little of this? And I remembered that the book of Revelation is written to those who are suffering for their faith. But more specifically, the book is written to those who are faithful in their suffering. It's written to people who won't give up on Jesus. And the reason is because this picture of eternity isn't just a place filled with pleasure. Sometimes it's how we think about it, right? It's like Disneyland. There's so much cool stuff to do. You know, once you, you know, paid the ransom to get inside and, like, mortgaged your ch- children, you know. It's not a place that's full of pleasures the way that Disneyland is. Don't get me wrong. It's the most pleasurable of places, but not because it's filled with what we on earth can easily recognize as pleasures. Instead, eternity is the place where we become human, truly human, as God intended, and not Very importantly, not as we imagined. It's the place where the most important relationship we look forward to isn't with departed family and friends, although we will be reunited with them. Instead, it's where our relationship with God is restored. 
It isn't the place where we're set free to make a new world, like heaven's a big bunch of Legos, and we can put it together, which actually, that's like my nightmare. I don't care for Legos. But, you know, if Calvin, if we set him loose in a field of Legos, he'd never come home, right? But it, it's, it's not like that. It's not this place that we make and, and, and that we build and, and that we get to shape according to our best understanding, Instead, it's the place that we're inheriting God's creation for his purposes. And did you get what the problem is there? If we don't love what God is doing, how will we love eternity? If, if we are tempted to substitute our own values and our own pleasures and say, if God's not like this, then he can't possibly be good, then whatever heaven we make will be an idol. Whatever heaven we think about will be an idol if the first question isn't what, uh, isn't to ask, how, what will God make this like? How does God make heaven? If our first question is, what do I think it could be like? Then we've already distorted the picture. Because God is the great good, and our goodness is dependent on his. We aren't good ever apart from him. We can't be. That's what it means that he's God. And that's what it means to be his creatures. And it's not because God's holding out on us, because he fully invites us in. That's what this picture is about. He's not going to hold out on a single thing, but he is going to say, if anyone's going to make heaven, it's got to be me, because only I, I'm, I'm the maker. I'm the creator. Your imagination isn't sufficient. You could never put together enough to satisfy you forever. And we know it, don't we? How many of us have spent so much time and effort and energy and money in our lives to try and build the life that we thought we had always wanted? And then we get there, and what do we say? What's next? Because I'm not done. Because this isn't enough. And if we don't say what's next, we say it's gone because it was temporary, and it could never have lasted. See, if we imagine that we get to make heaven, if we don't keep a careful rein on it to say only what God says about it, we'll actually be imagining hell. We will be falling further in love with hell. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of receiving great visions and revelations of heaven. Here's what he says. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's only as I was studying this week that I realized more fully the significance of what Paul is saying here. We must treat eternity with the greatest care, not substituting our own fallen ideas and desires for the truth. There's perhaps no faster way to hell than misrepresenting heaven because of what that misrepresentation does to our soul, teaching us to love the created things rather than the creator. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what greater treasure can we have than our conception of heaven, of the perfect world? People have tried to build heaven on earth. The 18th and 19th centuries in particular are littered with the corpses of communities built to be perfect. And not only did all of them fail, 
In their failure, they often destroyed the people who were part of them. The French Revolution, I know I keep talking about it, but it's just so helpful. This is a great representation of that idea. The authors, or at least the caretakers of the revolution, believed that they had built something so wonderful, so grand, that anything and everything must be done to support it. And so began the reign of terror. So came out the guillotine. Nothing is more destructive to ourselves and those around us than substituting our vision of the blessed state in place of God's vision. Robespierre, uh, if you don't know much about the French Revolution, you might at least remember his name, one of the most famous leaders of the Committee of Public Safety, which really does need air quotes around it for how many people they killed in the name of that safety. Robespierre was maybe the greatest architect of the French Revolution, and he ended at the guillotine. All of our conceptions of heaven lead us to the same place, if they are not always and carefully informed by Scripture. Even a near-death experience is not to be trusted except so far as it can be verified by Scripture. And there's more to cover. We're only about halfway through what is in reality a unified section of Scripture, which encompasses all of Revelation 21 and 22. So next week, we'll finish the journey. But until then, I want to leave you with this. In eternity, God will have finished the work of making you godly as individuals and as a church. He himself will be our great treasure. And don't substitute him out for anything. And he will give us the life that only he could have imagined that heals every rift, that brings complete peace, and that finally, fully, satisfies. No more what's next, just it's here.